Welcome to Sword and Shield, the official podcast of the 960th Cyberspace Wing. Join us for insight, knowledge, mentorship, and some fun as we discuss relevant topics in and around our wing. Please understand that the views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of the U.S. Air Force nor the Air Force Reserve, and no endorsement of any particular person or business is ever intended. Good day, gladiators. Thank you for joining in for another episode of the Sword and Shield podcast. This is Francis Martinez, Director of Psychological Health for the 960th Cyberspace Wing. I do have a very special guest joining uh, us over the phone from Fort Bliss. I have Kayla Hodges. Thank you, Kayla, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And so... October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Um, October actually has quite a few uh, awareness months. And so this is one of the ones that we wanted to highlight on our podcast today because it is so prevalent. And a lot of the times we don't really hear um, survivor stories uh, as it relates to domestic violence, because it's a little bit scary, right, to talk about um, situations and, and things that happen, especially within the military. Absolutely. And uh, I thank you for, for joining us today and uh, wanting to uh, share your survivor story. Um, but I want to give some, some stats because I don't think people really realize, you know, how frequent um, domestic violence occurs. Um, there are about 20,000 calls a day to the domestic violence hotline. And for me, that's just like, oh, overwhelming. About one in three women are subjected to some sort of intimate partner um, or domestic violence um, and one in four men. So those are quite high numbers. Um, and a lot of the times when we talk about domestic violence, people automatically assume females are the victims of domestic violence, but about 25% of men in their lifetime have experienced some sort of domestic violence or intimate partner violence. So Yeah, so the numbers are scary to hear because you don't really talk about it. So when you hear the statistics, it's like, it's just alarming to hear. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, about 500% increased risk of homicide when a gun is present in a domestic violence situation. Um, I'm going to turn turn it over to you. Uh, I know your your story involves some some pretty graphic um, and scary situations. So I do want a, a disclaimer out there for our listeners. Kayla's, Kayla's story does involve uh, personal uh, story of domestic violence. It can be, you know, re-traumatizing for those people that have been in the, in these situations. Um, but her, her goal and her focus is talking about her story and how she overcame, um, and survived. So, um, I just want to give a, a fair warning for the, for our listeners out there. So over to you, Kayla, and we can start at the beginning, like, you know, uh, where you guys met, how the relationship kind of started, um, and what that looked like for you. Yeah, absolutely. So I met him in 2012. I was 19 and I had a young daughter. My daughter was only five months old and I met him and it was just kind of like the honeymoon phase where 
you're happy and everything looks like rainbows and sunshines and he you know comes in wants to take care of my daughter wants to take care of me like just paints this whole love picture of it's going to be so awesome we're going to be a family so i'm young and i'm a young mom and i'm thinking like wow i can't believe that in this situation i never thought that i would meet somebody who wants to raise somebody else's daughter who wants to be with somebody who already has a kid so i'm thinking this must be the one so i fell and i fell fast and in the span of five months we had met got married and got pregnant so i was 19 and i already had a young daughter now i'm pregnant with yet another kid and i'm married to this man that i met five months ago and i'm thinking like wow, this is actually awesome. My life is panning out. I'm not seeing any red flags. I'm not seeing anything that worries me. I'm thinking that this is just it. Um, two months later, he actually got orders to deploy. So he deployed in February of 2013. And at that time I was pregnant. I wasn't working. Um, so he deploys and then he ends up, ends up coming back quicker than planned. So he came back in June. Um, and when he came back, I could feel and see a difference. He was definitely more angry, um, less patient, uh, more distant, but I just kept thinking, okay, well, he's deployed. He's just coming back. Kayla, you have to give him time. He's got to adjust to life back in the States. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just kind of ignored all the red flags that I saw. And I ended up having to go into the hospital two months early to have my daughter, um, had my youngest daughter and then came home. Everything still was, was okay. He was a little angry, still a little different, but I just kept blaming it on the deployment or, you know, we just had another kid. Maybe it's just all the pressure and I'm thinking it's going to change. He's going to go back to how he was before it's going to be okay. So I just kind of kept, lying to myself and telling myself that it was going to be okay. You know, I was still young and scared. I now had two kids, you know, at the age of 20 and I'm thinking like, what am I going to do? You know, what am I, where am I going to go? I don't work. I am depending on this man. I have two young daughters that need me. I can't just walk away. So I just kind of accepted all of the red flags and at that um, point, at that point, was was there any sort of physical contact or was it just, you know, the anger or yelling? What did that look like? So it was all just anger at that point when I had first, when we first came home, it was just more of mental abuse, uh, just the yelling, the screaming, but nothing physical. Okay. So then I just kept kind of reassuring myself, okay, well, it's just mental abuse. Like it'll, it'll get better. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not physical abuse. Like, it's not that bad. There's people who have it worse. So I'm thinking it's okay. And then when our daughter turned five months, it turned physical. Mm -hmm. And he would, you know, just get angry and he would hit me or he would choke me or he would, you know, block me from my phone or getting out the door. And I just kept feeling like maybe it was something that I was doing. Mm -hmm. Like maybe somehow I was triggering it. So I just kept reinforcing to myself, like, okay, it's you, Kayla, you have to maybe do this different or do that different. And it's going to change, you know, and I was lying to everybody and I wasn't telling my family or my friends or, or anybody what was going on. So I was just keeping it inside and taking it 
you know, and taking the physical abuse and it just got worse and worse. And I like eventually got to a point where I was like, okay, I think I need to reach out and get help. Mm-hmm. You know, and, I think I need to, to talk to my family. And so the cycle of abuse generally, right? Uh, something happens, um, like you're physically assaulted or pushed or, you know, um, just out of control yelling type of behaviors. And then it's like, Oh, I'm sorry. You know, please forgive me. And then it's a honeymoon stage. Right. And then it kind of cycles again. Did you see any of that in your relationship? Absolutely. It would get physical. And then he would just say, I can't believe I did that. I'm so sorry. I love you so much. I'm never going to do it again. I don't know what got into me. I can't believe I did that. So then I was thinking, okay, he feels remorse for what he's doing. Mm-hmm. So he didn't mean to, he just got angry. You know, he's, he's sorry about it. And I kept believing that over and over and over again, that it was you know going to change because he was feeling sorry. Mm-hmm. And it, it didn't change, you know, and I, took about six months of it. And then I got to a point where I was like, I just can't because I have daughters and I've got to do better for them. Uh, So I started speaking to my family. I started, you know, telling them what was going on. And I think that's kind of where it gets hard because sometimes when you tell people, they don't know how to react, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's not something that we talk about. It's not something that I ever talked about with my family, like domestic violence. I know we never spoke about it. So now that I'm going through it, I'm just thinking like, well, what did I do wrong? Mm-hmm. Like, how did I put myself in this situation? And sometimes we accept behaviors because we we were brought up in those types of situations, right? Like if we're in a domestic violence uh, childhood upbringing, a lot of the times that's what our normal is, right? And so we accept right. that later in life and, oh, this is how I grew up. This is how things just are. Um, and so it doesn't sound like that was your case. Well, my mom, my mom was definitely in a toxic relationship, a toxic marriage, and we saw that growing up, but like you said, it felt normal. Mm-hmm. I, I never knew anything else. I never knew a healthy relationship. So I just thought that this is maybe how it starts off. Yeah. And you know, and then you just think that that's how it's supposed to be. And so reaching out to family to get help, what did that look like for you? So it just looked like being honest, you know, and telling my mom, I think I'm in a really dangerous situation. I think that I am somewhere that I can't get out of. I don't know what to do or Mm -hmm. how to do it because, you know, he would say, if you ever leave me, I'm going to kill you or Mm -hmm. I'm going to come find you, you know? So then you feel like you can't leave. Yeah. You just feel so trapped. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a turning point for you. And do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, the escalation, the actual turning point event and what that happened is? I know it's a pretty scary situation that that you went through and then, you know, kind of how you overcame that. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, I got to a point where I knew enough was enough and I decided that I wanted to leave. So I got a job and I got my own apartment and I moved my girls out and we were living and we were doing fine. We were doing good. I had cut him off. I didn't answer text messages. I didn't answer calls and we were still in the same city, but we didn't see each other or speak. Um, So I felt like, okay, maybe I'm out of this. Maybe this is it. 
Um, and then one day I was at my apartment and I was getting ready for work in the morning and I hear a bang at my door and I'm like, okay, that's weird. I go to my door and my door is actually being kicked in. Um, so he was kicking my door in and he had found me because he had stalked me from when I came home from work, he had followed me Mm -hmm. and knew where I lived. So he stalked me. He actually stayed. There was like an abandoned house kind of catty corner to where I lived. And he stayed in that house at night. And then in the morning he came and he was kicking down my door and I froze. I just froze. I didn't know. I just froze. And so I'm standing there and I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to do? You know, he's going to come in here. Like, what am I going to do? I have my two girls sleep in the bed. Um, So he comes in and he tells me to get in the car. So I grab my two girls and my girls are in pajamas. Like I have no shoes on. I'm still getting ready for work. Like I'm not fully, you know, ready. We get in the car and he drives me to work and I was working at a hospital at the time and we pull up to the front door um, and he tells me to get out and go to work. I have no shoes on. My girls have no clothes on. They haven't ate. Um, And I look at him and I just say, I can't get out. And he's like, you have to get out of the car and go to work. And I'm like, I can't get out because I just kind of knew that it was different. He mm-hmm. looked different. He was talking different. I knew it was different. Um, so I couldn't get out of the car. And so we drove away and we were driving down the highway back towards my apartment. And I just said, you know, when I get home, I'm going to call the police and I'm going to tell them that you kidnapped us and you're going to go to jail and I'm going to move away. And that triggered him. So he took my cell phone and he threw it out the window on the highway and just starts driving. And we start driving out towards kind of like a wooded area uh, about 20 minutes from from the base that we lived by. And we get out there in the middle of nowhere and he parks the car on the side of the road and he tells me to get out. And my girls are crying and, you know, they're they're scared and I'm scared and I just kind of blank in the face and I get out the car and he gets out the car and he's, you know, yelling at me, screaming at me. Um, how could I do this? How could I leave him? How could I cut off all communication? You know, and so I'm just staying there and I'm just crying. And he pulled a gun out of his pocket and he held it towards me and told me that he was going to kill me and leave me in the woods. And he was going to tell my family that I just ran that I got, it was too much for me with the girls. It was too much by myself. So he was going to say that he came over one day and I was gone. Um, and I just, I just broke down. Like I was terrified. I was scared. I was crying. I was screaming. I was begging for my life. There was nobody around. There's no houses out there. It's literally the middle of nowhere. Um, and I'm screaming and I'm crying and I'm just begging him, you know, I just please take me home. I'm so sorry. Like, I'll take you back. I, I'll, you know, I'll change. I'm just saying whatever I feel like I can say to snap him out of it. So um, eventually he snapped out and he let me get back in the car. And we were driving back towards my apartment. And I don't know if it was just like word vomit, but I just said, like, I'm going to call the cops when I get home. And he turned around and he was like, did you not learn your lesson? And I was just crying and begging him to like, let us out the car. I mean, it's like, you could have my car. I'll just walk with the girls. Um, anything I could say that I thought would make him pull over, but there was nothing. He was just in a rage and there was nothing I could do or say to change it. So he 
stopped the car at the red light and told me that he was going to turn around and he was going to gonna go kill me and he was going to leave me. So he turned the car around and starts driving back down the street and I'm screaming and I'm crying. And at this point, I think I kind of knew like, this is it. Like, I'm not going to, if I go back out there, I'm not going to survive. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to live. And my girls, I have no idea what's going to happen. Um, so we were driving and I look in the rear of your mirror and I see a fire truck behind us. So I'm thinking in my head, what can I do? How can I, how can I save myself right now? Uh, so I'm in the back seat at this point and my girls are on the outsides in their car seats. And I reach over my daughter's car seat and open the door while, while we're driving down the street. And I just start waving my hand out the door. Like I just was waving, like, like I couldn't, I just couldn't believe that this was happening. So I'm waving my hand and I'm waving my hand. And he finally notices that the fire truck behind us, I think suspected something. Mm -hmm. They're like, okay, this girl, she needs help. So they turn their lights on and they start following us and we're driving down kind of like a, a, a main street. So it's pretty busy. There's, there's cars, but we're speeding and we're kind of like dodging through traffic. I still have the door open and I'm just waving my arm. And I just looked at my girls and I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like, I, don't, I can't believe I did this to us. I can't believe I put this in position. And eventually the fire truck just keeps their lights on, keeps following us. And I don't know if he got spooked. I don't know what clicked, but he pulled the car over and he jumped out and he ran. And then, you know, the police came and the fire truck and, you know, the girls and I were safe, but it was like, I still was just blank because I couldn't believe that like, here I am, you know, like how could this fairy tale turn into a nightmare, you know? And so he ran and I went to my mom's house and I decided like, okay, I'm going to go to my apartment. I'm going to move out and I'm going to move back with my mom just somewhere where I felt safer because I wasn't alone. Mm-hmm. And I went the next day to get my stuff from my apartment and he had actually broken my house. He had threw a rock through my sliding glass door window. Um, and he had took a bat to everything in my house and a knife to all of my stuff. He threw out everything we owned. Um, and I just was, I think still to this day, I look back and I'm like, I can't believe that. Like I was living that, you know, because I was just this young girl who fell in love, who thought that everything was going to be magical. And then now I'm literally living in my nightmare. Yeah. And a lot of the times survivors blame themselves, right? It's like, I shouldn't have done this, but you know, the abusers also, you know, they have to be accountable for, you know, what they're doing to, to people. Absolutely. I think you feel like, oh, if I would have, you know, maybe if I would have changed or maybe if I didn't get irritated, maybe if I didn't nag him, maybe if I did this, he wouldn't be like this Mm -hmm. and you blame yourself, you know, and, and it's not your fault, but you feel like it's your fault in that moment. And so getting out of that situation, obviously you and your girls are safe. Uh, What does it look like for you now? Now is now is good. You know, I, I took time. I healed. I got counseling. I really focused on myself and my girls. Um, and then I actually met a man about five years later. I am now married. I have a son and my life is completely different. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I'm, I'm safe. My girls are safe. Like I feel love. I'm in love. And just looking back, I can't believe that I'm where I am now. Because when you're in that situation, you think it's not going to get any better. It's never going to change. You're never going to find somebody who loves you, right. you know, and now I am living that I've, you know, I went to court, we got full custody of our girls. Like I have, he has no ties to us at all. I have a restraining order against him for me and the girls for life. You know, we have no contact and it just kind of feels free. Mm-hmm. It feels free. Yeah. You know, there, it's so scary trying to get out of that situation. I'm sure. I mean, I can't even imagine when when you were talking about it. Like I had chills down my whole body, just listening listening to your story. And unfortunately, some people are so crippled by their fear or what's going to happen that they don't make it out of those situations. Yeah. And that's the hard part because it is scary, you know? And when I left, I was terrified. Like I didn't know how I was going to be able to take care of myself, not only myself, but now two kids, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm still young. Like I'm still trying to figure out my life and I was scared every single day, you know, but I just kept telling myself, okay, you make it through today. And then you look at tomorrow and then you make it through tomorrow. You look at the next day, you know, and I think probably for like a solid year, that was literally my mentality. It was just day by day. Okay, you did good today. Now what about tomorrow? And then the next day, you know, but it, it's very scary. Like you said, a lot of people can't get out because of that fear. Yeah. And so the messaging really today is, you know, there is hope outside of outside of domestic violence, right? There is always a way to get out and get help. Um, And so the family advocacy program at most military installations, you know, they have different types of uh, reporting that that can be uh, completed, unrestricted or restricted reporting, and and they have uh, different scenarios or different outcomes. Um, But it's really important for people to know their options, right? And And to have those resources available. And so you can contact 24 seven, the domestic abuse victim hotline at 210-367-1213. Also, there is the domestic, uh, national domestic violence hotline. It's 800-799-SAFE. That is 800-799-7233. As you know, we are uh, recognizing these different awareness months. Uh, the 53rd NOS um, has adopted our domestic violence awareness month and is taking a stand against domestic violence um, because 20,000 calls a day are recorded or reported uh, to the domestic violence hotline. We're asking that all of our listeners participate in the 20,000 squat challenge in the month of October. So 20,000 squats for those 20,000 calls. And we ask that people wear purple Uh, to show, you know, domestic violence uh, support and awareness and uh, know that we are all resilient. 
Kayla, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story. It's it's a, it's very brave um, to do that because most people, you know, they live in shame. They don't want to share these types of stories. So we we hope that our listeners, um, if there's anyone out there that needs uh, help, that will reach out because of your story. We we greatly appreciate you sharing that. Gladiators, please reach out if you're needing assistance. We are here to help and gladiators out. 